Good morning, everybody. It is very good to see you. Happy Wednesday. Y'all, it's going to be over 70 degrees today. Who's excited? Yes. 70 degrees and sunny. I say thank you. Just a few announcements before we get started. A reminder, we've got the parish party coming up on Friday night. If you are coming, I can't wait to see you there. And if you have not gotten your tickets and still want to come, know they will be available at the door. I'm not really supposed to promote that. But if you need a ticket, you can show up and they will sell one to you. So that's coming up on Friday night. And in case you cannot come, you know, something that I realized, it's been so long, five years since we've had a parish party, the name is a little misleading. It really is a fundraiser. That is what this is. And so if you want to participate with the fundraiser that helps to contribute to the money that the women use to give away every single year in their grants process, then you don't need to come to the party. You can actually go online. They have tons of things for auction online. And most of those things are like a gift card to this place that costs this much and you can probably spend less than the value of the gift card to get the gift card. So it's a win-win. Um, they get the money, you get a gift card, everyone wins. So do please um, go take a look if you are interested because there are ways to support the women of St. Michael without actually attending the party. But if you wanna come and you haven't gotten your ticket yet, there are still tickets available. As we start our Bible study today, reminder that we've got all the old lessons. Every week someone tells me that they are going back and listening to these lessons, which I think is amazing. And so if you are interested in going back and re-listening or listening for the first time to any of the books that we have studied, this is year seven. And thanks to Bove, we have gone back and reordered all of the podcasts. So it kind of looks like if you were to scroll through Netflix, it's like season one, episode three. I mean, you know, everything makes sense. So it's very easy for you to follow and you can track along and it's actually pretty decent. So thank you all for those of you who listen, um, especially those of you who re-listen, which I find amazing. Ask questions as we go because this is a good lesson. We're in chapter 12. Let's have a prayer and we'll launch in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We ask that you open us up today. Help us to put down all those things that worry us, that scare us, that keep us anxious. Help us to put those things down for the next hour. Make space inside us for your spirit to fill us up. As we begin this study, may we be inspired to be your hands and feet of love in the world. We also ask your presence upon all those in our lives that we hold in our hearts and minds today, those who are celebrating good things and those who are praying for hard things. We especially ask you to be present to those who need your healing touch today. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in chapter 12, and as I've told you all the last few weeks, chapters 11 and 12 are the pivot. The pivot away from the signs that Jesus has offered toward the passion story. And so that means really kind of today, but especially next week, we are fully into Jesus's passion. And so it is nice that this dovetails with the season of Lent. So a reminder that we are two weeks away from the beginning of Lent. Ash Wednesday is February 14th. What better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than a reminder of your mortality? And so come Ash Wednesday, we have services throughout the day beginning at 7 a.m. and ending at 7 p.m. with multiple other things. And one of the things that is always popular every year, I take ashes out to Preston Center 
And so for people who may have some ambulatory issues, um, especially people who care for people with ambulatory issues, um, I can't tell you, I mean, gosh, at least a few dozen people every year drive up with someone who has trouble getting around and I just lean in. It's like drive through ashes. It's great. And so... <laughs> I will be over in Preston Center somewhere around Susie Cakes, somewhere between Susie Cakes and Flying Fish. And so come find me. I'll be out there about 1230 to 1 o'clock-ish, um, depending on how long it takes. And then we've got, of course, services throughout the day right here at St. Michael. And if you do not live near St. Michael, then go somewhere near wherever you are, because there are plenty of churches that would love to see you for that day um, to get your Lent started right. And for those of you who are here present for RBS on Wednesdays, we do have a few special Lenten offerings on Wednesdays at noon. I guess technically it's 1210. At 1210 on Wednesdays during Lent, we're going to have a special recital right here, just a little music offering for 20 minutes before the 1230 Eucharist that we offer every Wednesday. And so if this is part of your regular routine that you come physically to RBS, then you may be interested in kind of extending your time. That means maybe a quick lunch or maybe a pack of lunch or maybe you eat before, whatever. But we have that recital right here in the chapel at noon and then the Eucharist at 1230. And that's a pretty decent Lenten discipline. So, and invite friends too. If people work around here or you know people live around here who might enjoy that special music, it's gonna be very nice. And it will be right here in the chapel each Wednesday in Lent. So today we have chapter 12 and chapter 12 gets us into that shift from Jesus's public ministry where he is doing all of the healing and the teaching and the signs and goes right into that final week of his life. So as we ended chapter 11, a reminder that Jesus raised Lazarus. Lazarus is now alive again. Jesus knows that he has essentially done the thing, taken the action, performed the sign that will get him ultimately arrested and crucified. And so Jesus takes just a few days and he runs up to Ephraim. And Ephraim is just north of Jerusalem in kind of the hill country. He's been there for six days, so almost a week. And as we get back into chapter 12, Jesus returns down to Bethany, back to the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so we're going to start there with chapter 12. But a couple questions from the raising of Lazarus last week that I think are helpful to us. The first is a really great question. Why the story of the raising of Lazarus is only in the Gospel of John and not in the three other synoptic Gospels, which is such a great question because one might think this is an incredible story. The raising of Lazarus is the kind of story that one would think a follower of Jesus would tell everybody. And so you've got Mark written first and then Matthew and Luke written next and then John written last. Why then is it John that contains this story and not the other three? I actually, until I had that question, had never really thought why the others didn't have Lazarus, which is a little embarrassing. Um, but as I went back and read commentaries and scholars and others about why this may be, the only compelling answer, well, let's say, there were two answers I thought were good enough to be like moderately compelling. The first that I'm not quite sure I like as much is that when Jesus, we know from the Gospel of John that when Jesus raises Lazarus, he becomes the big target. But there's also a plot to kill Lazarus. 
and that plot to kill Lazarus may very easily overflow into Lazarus's family. Martha, Mary, Jesus loves these people. These are his closest friends in the world. Is it possible, plausible, that because it had caused such a stir that Jesus raised Lazarus, that the earlier writers didn't name names, didn't bring that story up, didn't want to cause more trouble for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha or their families. And so they just kind of left it out. But by the time John is written, probably everyone's dead. So it isn't really that big a deal. It's one of those where you don't necessarily get the true story when you're so close to the real life. But once a generation is gone, you can sort of spill all the tea, in a sense, because everyone is safe. Meh. I don't mind that answer. I think that feels to me a little too convenient. The other answer that I like, and I think is probably the answer I like the most, even though I haven't had enough time to really run this down in my head, is that raising of people is a really good story regardless of who is raised. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get the raising of Jairus' daughter. And so it's not as if Jesus does not bring someone back from the dead. In fact, in Luke, we get two raising stories. And so it, those gospel writers also use the weight of bringing someone back from the dead, of raising them back from the dead in order to tell their story. They just use a different story of Jesus raising someone from the dead than John uses. I find that answer interesting because it almost seems to imply, as we have discussed in here, that when the gospel writers choose the story of Jesus they're going to write. We've talked in here about how it's a portrait. Um, I've used the example of if you go and ask four people in your life who know you well to write your story, they're all gonna write a different story and all four of those stories will be true. It just changes based on who that person is. Is that your child? Is that your friend? Is that your neighbor or your coworker or whatever? They're all gonna tell a true story. They're just all gonna be different. It's very possible that as the gospel writers chose the story they were going to tell, they all included components of what Jesus did. It is important for us to consider, consider that all of them incorporated a story of Jesus raising someone from the dead. It's very possible Jesus did that many other times and they only included one of those stories. Jesus healed people of their blindness, of their lameness, of on and on. All of those gospels tend to choose one of those stories as an example, but it's likely Jesus did that many, many other times. It's just when you know that Jesus gave one person their sight back, if you find out he did that five more times, it's like diminishing returns. You know, he did it once, that's incredible. He did it twice, you're like, sure. He did it five or eight times, and you're like, duh, of course he can. So it just, it doesn't kind of has, have the weight that the first one does. And so they kind of tell one version of all these different stories because they really wanted to hit us from all different angles in that in the aggregate, all the gospel writers are really telling the same kind of story, even if they don't use the exact same examples one to another. I don't mind that answer. And that's as good as it gets today from me. Thank you very much. <laughs> The other questions that we received from last week really have to deal with the delay of Jesus coming back to Lazarus. And I know I addressed it last week, but I do want to kind of 
maybe turn that crystal a little bit. Every time we talk of prayer in here, it, the idea of prayer and how God answers prayers or how we perceive God to answer or not answer prayers really sticks with some people. Um, and every time we speak of prayers, at least one person voices a genuine frustration about how we might interpret prayer and the answering of prayers because it can so easily feel like there is a callousness of God. You know, we ask for help. We pray for needs. And then God does not do what it is we asked for. And so then what kind of love is that? How, does, how do we describe God as caring when God does not seem to care for what we care about? And that's an important dynamic because if we speak of relationships, we've all been in intimate relationships with at least a few other people where we know that other person cares about stuff that we do not care about. Everybody knows that feeling where you love a person and they care so deeply about a thing and you cannot for the life of you make yourself care. And yet, because you care for them, you try your best and fail often. Uh, this is maybe more of my confession than anyone else's. Um, <laughs> you try your best to care about what they care about, even if you don't really care about that thing, you care about them. Okay, so then I think if we apply that kind of human understanding, then one could argue God may not care about the things that we care about, but doesn't God care about us? And so then wouldn't God take action for our sake because God loves us? I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make. And yet, what we see over centuries and centuries of experiences of God is that that's just not how it works. Now we can, like people for thousands and thousands of years, we can be frustrated about that, and that is okay. Our frustration does not change the experience that our predecessors have had with God that they have tried to teach us. I think if we look at the value of scripture over centuries, millennia, there is one thread of truth that is God is doing things in God's time and we are attempting to understand God's timing and God's desires and God's directions. We've talked in here before about how much I don't care for God's planning when we speak of it's all part of God's plan in order to describe something painful, there is a line to walk here that is very fine. It's like a razor's edge where God is doing things, yes, but God does not plan for our pain. And that's nuanced. And it takes a lot of effort and time for us to I would say hopefully accept that, internalize that, so that when bad things happen, our first response hopefully isn't, why did God do that? 
because that's not exactly right. And if it is, then don't beat yourself up. That's human. But hopefully, Bible studies and prayers and other experiences like that that kind of deepen our spirituality will help us get to the point where we don't immediately say, why did God do that to me? Or why did God do that to them? And instead, say, what can God do now? That's the better kind of question. Because in the darkness, which we will read about in chapter 12, and in the pain, and in the heartbreak, and in the misunderstanding, and in the hurt, God can still do something good. And God can often do something good through us. And so we are not simply bystanders here. We are participants in what God can do as bad things happen. This is hard. It is not what most people learn in their childhood or in their adulthood because it's more difficult. It is so much easier for us to just make God have a plan which includes all the bad stuff and just trust God. That's fine. And if that's where you are, don't worry about it. You are totally fine. But I do think what we see in Scripture is an invitation to participate more than that, to be part of God's work more than just observing God's plan. It's probably all I'll say on that today because it is a reiteration of things that we have talked about before, but it's, I think, nice to hear those things a few different ways over time. It's kind of like, you know, you read a book when you were 13. Should you read it again now? Absolutely, you're different. And so as we change and grow, reflecting back on ideas that we may not have thought about for six months or 12 months or 10 years is important because we ourselves have changed and our experiences will hopefully give us a deeper capacity to understand who we are as part of God's work. Okay, any follow-up questions there or comments? Yes. What's your question? I, I'm, I'm trying to connect to God. So, so you're confused about me saying God does not plan for our pain. And so let me see if I can just say it differently. We know from Scripture and, of course, through our own traditions that darkness exists and God is the light in the darkness. And so there are many ways in which that reality has been described over time. And as I noted last week, uh, many of us, without knowing it, default to a kind of Dante style of understanding things. And so you naturally get this heaven-hell sort of dichotomy. We don't get the kind of heaven-hell business in the Bible the way that most of us perceive of heaven and hell. That is, that is extra-canonical. It's outside the Bible, really. doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that I want you to know, as good Bible study students, that that's not really biblical. If we take, though, the idea of darkness and light, a temptation is to say, 
good and evil are, ba are battling all the time in the world. And then what we get, and we see this in scripture a lot, is this idea of the demons or the Satan or that sort of stuff. And it's very easy for us to then make it out to be like good angel, bad angel, or it's good God, bad God. You know, the good God is God, Yahweh. The bad God is Satan. And they just are constantly fighting. And we see that in the apocalyptic literature. We see it in Daniel. We see it in Revelation. So it is perfectly understandable that we would essentially have this two gods fighting against each other kind of understanding of the world. The problem with that then is that it's a dualistic way of understanding the reality of the spirit. Dualism is not monotheism. And so it is important for us to root ourselves in what is more common in scripture, and that is this call toward monotheism. There is only one God. God is God, there's only one God, the end. That necessarily means then that there isn't this secondary bad God that is fighting the primary good God. Tracking me? Okay, sorry. This is like a year's worth of systematic theology all at once, okay? So if we have gone from darkness and light, that's real, but we also are monotheistic where there's only one God, then what do we do with the light and the dark? Essentially where, I will tell you where I have landed, where a lot of people have landed who kind of fall in that sort of Anglican-y uh, theological space is that the light is God. The light is God's presence, God's spirit, and the darkness is the absence of God. And so in the darkness comes God's presence. The world has darkness in it, and into that darkness comes God's presence. That has happened in many ways over time. God's voice speaking in the earliest times, God's voice speaking through prophets, in that middle time, God's actual incarnate presence in Jesus, and then God's spirit in us that helps us to reflect that light into the darkness of the world. All of those dots are connected over time. And what is consistent is that God's goodness, God's light, is what fills the darkness. So when I say that God does not plan our pain. That is a distillation, so to speak, or that's a conclusion drawn from this fundamental idea that God's goodness is what fills the darkness. God's light is what fills the darkness. And so the darkness then is something we all experience. And that can be any number of things. That can be pain and heartbreak. That can be disease. That can be loss. That can be accidents. That can be, you name it. All the things that we experience that are kind of like the darkness of the world, into that darkness comes God's light and God's hope, God's presence, God's salvation. And so God may not be planning for us to experience the darkness, but God knows we will. And so God is with us when we experience that darkness and then can shine light into that darkness. Now that shining the light in the darkness often does not look the way we want it to look. Because the way we want it to look is the cancer is cured, the person did not die, the per you know, and on and on. 
God's light may not shine in the darkness the way we wish it to, but that doesn't mean that it is not shining. And part of our faithfulness is a, an acceptance that the reality we experience, which is the darkness, is not all there is. And so when we go through those dark moments, and then God's light provides us hope, the hope is not that this world we experience will somehow be exactly the way we wish it to be. The hope is that this world is not all there is, and that we are promised something more, even beyond death itself. What is that? We don't know. But that is the promise that God makes us that we believe is made most fully in the person of Jesus, and that is sustained in us through the Holy Spirit, that even beyond death, we will come to that greater realization. And that greater realization is the salvation, the eternal life that Jesus promises us. And let us not act like it's harps and wings and clouds and things like that. That's not the kind of thing that we are promised. The hope that we are promised is that there will be a point in which the darkness is overcome for good and forever. We may not see it as we live in this world, but we have been promised to see it in the end. Okay. Chew on that for a little bit. And then we'll, we'll talk again. Okay, that's probably like a replay. Um, but here we go. Any other questions? Thank you for that. Yes. So you acknowledge that the raising of Lazarus. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Okay, so can I? Yeah, it's a great question. I really want you all to hear this question because it is superb. Um, we can acknowledge that it sure sounds good to be raised from the dead. And do you think Lazarus is better off now having been raised from the dead? Or actually, would he have been better off just staying dead? <laughs> it's such a great question because I will, I will tell you as a priest, one of the things that I often say, not every time, because sometimes it's not, I don't judge it appropriate, but I will often enter a moment with a family who is in pain very commonly because a member of that family or that circle, a loved one, is now nearing death. And one of the things that I will often say if I feel it appropriate is that there are plenty worse things than dying. That, sometimes it's not appropriate to say that, but often in that moment, what that's doing is it's recalling very simply the hopefulness that we have 
in our faith. That actually, and I've said this in here before, God is not overly concerned with us staying alive. Like, that's not, that's our concern. For God, why? Because in a sense, things get better. And so when someone is going through a huge amount of pain at the end of their life, even when their life has been cut short, and you've got machines on and you're all the things, and you know, especially when there's brain death and all that, it's horrible. And people are doing, they're grasping at every possible way to prevent death. It's important to remember that we may only be preventing death. We may not actually be saving life. And we've gotten so good at preventing death that there's often this liminal space where the person's no longer living and, and or they're in pain. And I, this is too much for today, but at some point, maybe we can get into the whole like dignified death kind of idea because I find the idea that you can give thanks and die with dignity, wonderful. Because there is nothing wrong with being confident, having lived a good life, to say it gets better. And there's no despair, there's no depression, there's none of that stuff. It's like, I'm good. You know, I mean, I have told my children, and I have written it down in many places, if you try to keep me alive when I have died, I will haunt you. <laughs> so, like, you let me go. I am fine. You, you all have heard this. It is now recorded. Like, if it's, if it's my time, bye. I'm good. I'll see you later. Because I don't need any of that. That is not necessary. Um, we were just talking the other day with some friends here about, you know, all of these shows about the apocalypse, you know, like the world is ending and things are falling apart. And then you like fight to the bitter end to stay alive. No, thank you. You know, if there was like nuclear holocaust, I'd be like, zombies are coming. Like, here I am. Because I'm not interested. I don't need to stay. There's nothing to fight for. I'm good. Um, and so I do think the question of whether Lazarus was better off dead, I mean, there's a plot now to kill Lazarus again, like to make sure he's like real dead this time. And it paints him with a target. And so I do think it's a very interesting question to say, is he actually better off had he just stayed dead? we immediately think life is better than death. We probably should be a bit more critical of that. And I do think that as we age, that question becomes more and more tangible and more and more important for us to wrestle with. And don't even just wrestle with this in your own head. Talk to people about it. Because there is no better gift to people you love, then when you go, they know that you are fine, that you are solid, that you believe that you have made the plan, let me go. Because it's when people seem to grasp for anything to not die that the people left behind struggle the most. And so don't keep it to yourself. Talk about it with your family. Let them know that you're not afraid. And if you do feel right now that you are afraid, ponder. Like, actually pray about that, because I would hope that we would all get to the point where death is not scary. It doesn't mean that we don't wish to live today, but at least we're not afraid. That would be really great. Okay, now I have spent half our time 
um, doing questions, which I do want to say I actually planned for because these are good questions. It's a lot of good faithful wrestling. And chapter 12, we can do a little bit faster. So I, we're really okay. I thought these might take a little time. Um, let's start though with, we've got, I've got four sections today, but it's not gonna take as long as, you, as it might sound. Um, the first, we're gonna talk about the three people at the beginning of chapter 12 that I think make it very interesting for us. And that's Martha, Mary, and Judas. Then we're gonna talk about the triumphal entry, something that we know very well. Jesus speaks then of his death, and he wrestles with the people's unbelief. So those are the four sections today. So let's just jump in to the opening verses. And what I want us to do as we look at these opening verses, think very specifically about, the, about three people, Martha, Mary, and Judas. As we read these verses, place them in the story, what they are doing, how they're feeling, what they're saying, if they're saying anything, because I want us to actually... I, identify, perhaps, with one of those three people. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days after the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She, she bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We'll stop there. Martha is working in the kitchen, kind of normative for Martha. She's throwing a party, she's making sure everything's going smoothly, and so she's serving everybody. So she's back and forth from the kitchen, probably cleaning up plates and serving more food and refilling glasses and all that sort of stuff. Mary takes this very expensive perfume, anoints Jesus's feet, wipes his feet with her hair, it is the most servant kind of experience. She is serving Jesus in the most tangible way that she can possibly create. And then Judas judges Mary and says, why are we being so wasteful? I hope that it's not so hard for you all to identify more with one of those people than the other two. We're all, some of us, are certainly the ones that constantly serve. You know, we are very put together. We always want people to be comfortable. We give of ourselves and give of ourselves and give of ourselves until we're exhausted. Then often we get mad at everybody else because we're exhausted. <laughs> then you've got Mary. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say most Marys are not going to come to Bible studies on Wednesday mornings. So, you know, although there may be a few of you in here, my guess is that the Marys of the world are out there, you know, soaking up the sun or, you know, I don't know, jet skiing or something. Um, so Marys tend to be very much of the moment. They just kind of 
do whatever moves them. And they tend to be, you know, they would have flowers in their hair and they would be singing all the time. And it's just like joy upon joy upon joy. Like, or it's depression upon depression upon, I mean, it's like poles. You know, the Marys of the world just feel everything and they feel everything out loud. And they take actions without really thinking about them because they feel everything all the time. And then you've got the Judases. They typically serve on the finance committee. You've got the... (laughs) You've got the Judases who are super organized. They are thoughtful, they are strategic, they do not give away too much because they know they need to have more later. They are this hyper planners. They've got all of the savings accounts and the investment portfolios, and they're the ones that have long conversations with me about how much they have in the outlook of the market and all the other stuff. What I want to note here just before we say this, John is really judgy about Judas, and you've heard me say before that I think Judas, the person, is so much more faithful than John gives him credit for. I think Judas is doing what he knows how to do to the best of his ability for the good of Jesus and for the other disciples. We hear that Judas keeps the purse. Yes, John says he steals from it. I don't know. I find all of that unnecessary, and I just kind of ignore that. I think Judas is the one who is most organized, And he is thinking ahead, and he wants to make sure they have the money to buy the food that they need. And if it takes a few weeks for them to get more money, that he spaces things out so that nobody goes hungry. I mean, I think Judas is doing all of that kind of planning. And so when Judas is described here as being judgmental toward Mary, what he's really saying is that is good money. That is a good resource. And we can do something really good with that resource. And do you note that it says we could have sold that perfume and given it to the poor. Okay, Judas is not some jerk. He's not selfish. He's using his skill to try to make the biggest impact over time that they can make, and I think because of his faithfulness to Jesus. So in all those ways, Martha, Mary, Judas, none of them are wrong, but they're doing their faithfulness. They're living out their discipleship in very different ways. And I think that we have this moment, this snapshot, where we can probably identify most with one of them. And then that can help us in our own discipleship to be confident in who we are, but also to know that there are other right ways to be a disciple. Just because we may live that out in one particular way be careful not to then judge others for doing it differently. Okay. Any comments on that? And then, of course, the dead man's eaten at the table. So, section number two. This is the triumphal entry. This is what we recognize at Palm Sunday. So, Palm Sunday is the moment when we have this whole big deal. And so, I'm going to read through it just to hear it. But we're going to kind of skip over the parts of this that we know well. I do want to note that Passover is the festival that remembers the day that the angel of death passed over the Israelites while they were in bondage in Egypt that ultimately encouraged Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. So hopefully we all remember that. Let's look at verse 12. We'll read a few together. 
The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see? You can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We know this scene well. We do it every Palm Sunday. We all shake our palms and we wave them and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus comes in on a donkey. We used to have a live old donkey here that I, you know, blessed and let on their way. Um, so we have this experience where we know it's festive and it's celebratory. And it's Hosanna and all of that stuff. A close reading might ask, why that parade on Passover? So as I noted, Passover remembers when the Israelites in bondage in Egypt were set free. Now, they were not Jewish yet, but they were Israelite people. And then they go off and they cross the Red Sea and they go to Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, and then on and on and on. In this moment, Jesus is doing something a little bit different. And it's important for us to note that what Jesus is doing here, what is representative here of the palms and the donkey and the procession, actually goes back to the Maccabean revolt. So remember in chapter 10, we talked about how John referenced the Maccabean revolt and the reclaiming of the temple. That was about 160 years before this point in time. That's when Judas Maccabeus led the revolt pushed out the pagans, reclaimed the temple, cleansed the temple, and we know that as the festival of Hanukkah. When the Maccabees pushed out the pagans out of Jerusalem and reclaimed the temple, there was a festival procession that included the waving of palms, and they were brought in on donkeys and horses as the new kings. The Maccabees became the new kings of Jerusalem over the Jewish people. And so in this moment, John, at least, is telling this story very explicitly, combining both Passover and Hanukkah together. Because what this represents is both a new saving, because in Passover, the Israelites were saved from death in Egypt. So it's a new kind of salvation. And when Hanukkah occurred and they had that celebratory procession, there was a new kingdom put in place, the rightful king over Judaism, over Jerusalem. And so Jesus is doing both at the same time, a new saving and the rightful king that is all collapsed into this one scene where he is processing into palms at the Passover. Good? Questions about that? I want you all to experience Palm Sunday differently this year because it's both Passover and Hanukkah put together. 
and your friends are gonna say, I thought Hanukkah was about dreidels. And you'll say, nope, <laughs> different, okay. Let's see. Let's keep going. Verse 23, Jesus begins to talk of his death very openly and very explicitly. Up to this point, John has told the story of Jesus where Jesus regularly recalls to the people that his time has not yet come. Remember, right before his very first sign at the wedding in Cana, which is in John, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And what does Jesus say? My time has not yet come. And then Jesus reiterates that multiple times throughout the first 12 chapters until we get to this point. And then now the time has come. And so look at verse 23. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And we'll stop there. Finally, the time has come. Jesus has multiple times throughout the story says, not yet my time. The time has not come. Nope, not my time. Now the time has come. And how does Jesus feel? One might think he's excited, like the time has come. But John says Jesus feels troubled. That's a very interesting word to use here. Jesus is troubled that now the time has come. We know that Jesus is fully human, in addition to being fully divine. We get this wonderful moment here where Jesus' humanity comes out in a very strong way. Jesus is troubled because it's kind of nearing the end. Even though we have the entire second half of John's gospel, this is now, we are less than a week away from when Jesus will be crucified. And so Jesus knows he's got a matter of days left. And so his humanity is coming out. We see this again, probably most vividly, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays for there to be some other way for this to happen. John understands Jesus as one who knows what will happen. But Jesus is still human, in addition to being God incarnate. That's critically important for us to remember because we typically go one way or the other. We either really, really like the human Jesus, and that's the one we, that we stick with, or we really, really like the divine Jesus, and that's the one we stick with. This is one of those moments where we need to keep them in tension. And we've talked before, I'm not going to talk about the Trinity, 
in the same way that I'm not going to talk about why is Jesus fully human and fully divine. I don't know. Um, so we just go with it and we just work with it. In this moment, Jesus being troubled should give us maybe some comfort to know that Jesus experienced that kind of uncertainty, felt troubled when things got hard, and yet still pressed forward gives me a lot of hope. I really like the human Jesus. I like these moments where Jesus' humanity kind of comes out for us to see because then I think, yes, you actually know what I'm going through. And then what Jesus says is, Father, glorify your name. In this very small moment, we get a little bit of a map, a how-to guide to live our own lives. It's not that we don't feel troubled. It's not that we don't feel pain. It's not that we don't feel scared. But when we do, we seek to glorify God anyway. That's what Jesus does. Jesus feels troubled, and he says, Father, glorify your name. So in this moment, Jesus still knows that God can be glorified. God can be glorified in his pain and his uncertainty and his fear. And when he speaks that, the thunder rolls, the people hear something, and Jesus knows that in that moment, God is glorified. All of that is important, and it is good. But it doesn't mean just because Jesus has given the example to the people and they've even heard God's voice, whatever that sounded like, that everybody will believe. As we reach the end of chapter 12 in our final section, the unbelief is still very present. So before we get to that unbelief, questions or thoughts on Jesus struggling and feeling troubled. Do we like this? Mm. All right, let's press on, see if you've got any. The last section for today is about the unbelief still present around Jesus. So after everything that people have seen, and after all of the ways in which Jesus has borne witness to God, there's still a profound amount of unbelief. So we see in verse 43, they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. What John is speaking about here is our own human weaknesses, our own human failings. Imagine seeing all of these things happen and yet still being afraid, still being unwilling to kind of give yourself over to what God is doing through Jesus. It's hard enough for us, but even there, when Jesus is physically in front of them doing these incredible things, there are still plenty of people who can't quite commit all the way. Let's look at verse 44. Jesus cried aloud, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word as a judge, on the last day the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. 
For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus has come to this point, and John is making it explicitly clear that John believes Jesus speaks for God. Now, we might say, of course Jesus does. But remember that in the first century, Jesus lived, did his earthly ministry. He died, resurrected, ascended. Okay, then he's gone. Then you have this period of time, a decade or so, where Jesus' disciples, those who physically walked around with him, began to create a community and do things. And then they began to preach. And the religious authorities who had already killed Jesus begin to take it out on those disciples. And so we get the stoning of Stephen and that sort of stuff. But then the disciples begin to spread and they go and they start planting churches outside Jerusalem. They kind of figure out Jerusalem is not going to be the place where Jesus's ministry, his community thrives. And so that's then when we transition to Paul and the others who begin to plant churches all over what was then the eastern side of the Roman Empire. And after all of that happens, we're talking about 60-odd years after Jesus' birth. That's when the Gospels begin to be written. And so John is then 30 years after that. So we're talking about nearly a century after Jesus' birth. John is writing this Gospel. For John, it is very important that Jesus be the person who speaks for God. When Jesus was alive, especially in that first couple centuries, after Jesus was gone, not everybody believed that Jesus spoke God's words. Certainly, Jesus was a healer, a teacher, a prophet, for sure. But was Jesus actually God? That was under a lot of debate. <clears throat> and so for, for decades... People did not really know what to think of Jesus. John is putting forth a particular kind of theological understanding of who Jesus was that is mostly new. Certainly the Synoptic Gospels had a flavor of this, but nothing as explicit as what John presents. So for us, it's important to take John as a portrait, a perspective, an angle of understanding Jesus that likely represented the majority of the Christian community at the end of the first century. We definitely know that at, in the fourth century, when we develop things like the Nicene Creed, this understanding of Jesus wins in a sense. That's one of the reasons why John is in the Bible. There are other gospels, but the synoptics in John in particular create a thread that connect dots of what we call Christology, the understanding of who Jesus was in a very specific way. This passage then sets up what is the next half of the Gospel of John that then puts a very fine point on Jesus not just being a good guy, a good teacher, an amazing healer, a miracle worker, but that Jesus speaks God's words. Jesus is God incarnate. 
And that's very important for us to understand that John is making this argument very clearly, and it begins as explicitly as he, as he can right here. The people are in darkness. Jesus, God's word, is the light. And yet, even after all of the things that Jesus has done, the words he has spoken, the words of God himself, there are plenty of people who do not believe. The troubled feelings of Jesus right now must be rooted in that continued unbelief. And so as we get to this point, um, there's a little section of John that I kind of skipped over where the Greeks come and want to see Jesus. Those are Greek Jews. They're not Gentiles, not yet. But John is definitely beginning to lean into Jesus and his ministry, his message, his saving work is not just for the Jews, that this is for everybody. And the Jews are about, in their unbelief, the Jewish leaders, I should say, the Jewish leaders are now about to put their unbelief into action. And so when he is arrested and tried and crucified and buried, it is their unbelief that actually does that. And so what John is trying to invite us into as we read this is not just a series of events, but John's inviting us, ourselves, like you, actually you, to think about your belief. What do you believe? What do you struggle with? When you read these stories, are there components that you like? And so you kind of say, then I believe in that, but there are components that you don't like. And so you say, I just don't believe in that. John's trying to challenge you. Do know from me that I think John is one portrait. And so there are plenty of ways in which John does not speak for Christianity writ large. But John does push us into a particular place that I hope is challenging to you. If there are things about this, whether it's the raising of Lazarus or it's what Jesus says or does or does not say or do, don't resist that challenge as an opportunity to kind of dig more deeply into your faith. Because John, the gospel writer, does not know everything. But John, the gospel writer, does represent the progressive thought of Christianity that directly is in line with our own tradition because it does move toward that creedal understanding of the way that God functions in the world through the Trinity and through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus himself. Next week, we shift out of this ministry phase and we shift into Jesus's passion. And so as we shift, kind of get your minds together because we're no longer doing all the miracles and all of that kind of action. It gets a little darker. And so we're kind of going from the lighter stuff to the darker stuff. And it will be helpful for us as we travel the way of Lent. Good to see you all, and I will see you next week. <laughs>